The Red Crown by Mikhail Bulgakov. More than anything else, I hate sunlight, loud conversations, and, of course, the endless thudding. I'm so afraid of people that if I hear the unfamiliar steps and voices in the corridor in the evening, I start screaming for help. That's why I now have a room to myself, a peaceful, more pleasant one, number 27 at the very end of the corridor. No one can call on me here. But just to make myself even more secure, I spent a long time imploring Ivan Vasilievich, I even wept in front of him, to let me have a tight certificate. He agreed and wrote out a statement that I was under his protection and that nobody had the right to remove me. But to be honest, I wasn't completely convinced that his signature was enough. So he made one of the professors sign it as well, and he sealed it with a round blue stamp. That was quite another matter. I know many cases when people have stayed alive purely because a stamped piece of paper was found in their pocket. True, that worker in Berdyansk, the one with the sooty smear on his cheek, was hanged from a lamppost right after they found a stamped document, balled up and crammed down his boot. But that was a very different case. He was a Bolshevik criminal, and that blue stamp was a criminal stamp. That stamp sent him to the lamppost, and it's thanks to that lamppost that I'm now ill. Don't worry, I know perfectly well that I'm ill. The truth is that even before what happened to Collier, something had happened to me. I walked away so I wouldn't see how they hanged that man, but my terror came with me in the trembling of my legs. At that time, naturally, there was nothing I could do, but now I would say to him straight up, General, sir, you're a monster. You have no right to hang people. You can tell from this that I'm not faint-hearted. I didn't go on about the stamp because I was afraid of dying. No, oh, I have no fear of death. I'll put a gun to my head soon enough because Collier will drive me to despair. But I'll shoot myself so as not to see or hear Collier again. And the thought that others might come too is beyond bearing. For days on end, I've been lying on my bed and staring out of the window. A gash of sky yawns over our green garden. On the far side, a big yellow building looms. It's blank windowless seven-storey wall facing me. Right under the roof hangs an enormous rusty square, a signboard for the dental laboratory, in white letters. At first I hated it, then I got used to it, and if they took it down I'd probably miss it. All day long it hangs there, swaying. I concentrate on it and think about many important things. But then the evening comes, the dome grows darker, the white letters vanish from sight. I turn grey, melting into the murk, just as my thoughts also dissolve. Twilight's a dreadful time, full of meaning. Everything dwindles, everything blurs into something else. The ginger cat begins his wandering through the corridors on velvet paws, and every so often I scream. But I won't allow them to light the lamp, because if it's burning I shall spend the whole evening stobbing and wringing my hands. It's better to wait patiently for the moment when that last, most important image will light up again in the flowing darkness. Our old mother said to me, I won't last long like this. I see madness everywhere. You're the oldest, and I know you love him. Bring Collier home. Bring him home. You're the oldest. I said nothing. Then she poured all of her longing and all of her pain into these words. Find him. You're pretending that this is the way things have to be, but I know you. You're intelligent, and you've known for a long time that this is all madness. Bring him to me for a day. Just one day. I'll leave him, let him leave again. She was lying, 
Could you really let him go after she saw him? I said nothing. I only want to kiss his eyes. They'll kill him anyway. Can't you feel for me? He's my little boy. Who else can I ask? You're the oldest. Bring him to me. I couldn't bear it. I said without meeting her eyes. Very well. But she caught me by the sleeve and turned me towards her so that she could see my face. No, you must swear to me that you'll bring him to me alive. How could I make an oath like that? But, like the madman I am, I swore. I give you my word. My mother was too fearful. That's what I was thinking when I left her. But then I saw the crooked lamppost in Berdyansk. General, sir, I agree that I was no less guilty than you of the crime. I am paying a terrible price for the man with the smear of soot on his face. But my brother has nothing to do with that. He's 19 years old. After Berdyansk, I obeyed my oath scrupulously. I found him not 20 kilometres off by the stream. It was an unusually bright day. Throwing up swirls of white dust, a cavalry unit was proceeding at a walk along the road to the village from which a cloud of ash was rising. He was riding at the edge of the first column, with the peak of his cap pulled down over his eyes. I remember every detail. One of his spurs had slipped all the way down his heel, the strap of his cap stretched across his cheek and under his chin. Collier! Collier! I bawled and ran to the ditch by the side of the road. He started. In the column, the gloomy, sweaty soldiers turned their heads. Why, brother! He yelled back. For some reason he never called me by name. It was always brother. I'm ten years older than him and he always listened to me carefully. Wait, wait here, he went on. By this spinny. We'll be right back. I can't leave the squadron. At the edge of the wood, at a little distance from the dismounted troop, we smoked our cigarettes greedily. I was calm with him and firm. This was all madness. Our mother was perfectly right. And I whispered to him, Just as soon as you come back from that village, we'll go together to the city and we'll get out of this place forever, as soon as we can. What do you mean, brother? Don't say a word, I said. Don't say anything. I know what to do. The troop mounted up, swaying in the saddle. They rode off at a trot towards the black smoke clouds. A thudding came from the distance. An endless thudding. What could happen in an hour? They could come back. And I settled down beside the Red Cross station to wait. Within the hour I saw him. He was returning at a trot as he had left, but there was no sign of the squadron. Instead, there was just a rider with a lance galloping on either side of him. And one of them, the one on the right, kept leaning over my brother as if to whisper in his ears. Screwing up my eyes in the sun, I stared at this strange masquerade. He'd ridden away in a grey officer's cap. He came back in a red one. The day had ended. His face had become a black shield under a coloured crown. Where his hair and his brow had been, there was a crimson halo with yellow flecks. The horseman with the tousled red crown was my brother. He sat his lathered mount rigidly, and if the rider on the right had not been carefully holding him up, you could have imagined he was on his way to a parade. The horseman sat proudly in the saddle, but he was blind and dumb. Two wet red stains were all that remained of the bright eyes, sparkling an hour before. 
The rider on the left dismounted and seized the rein with his left hand, while the man on the right very gently pulled Collier's arm. Collier sagged sideways. Someone said, Hey, our volunteer's been hit by shrapnel. Audley, call a doctor. The other grunted and answered, The doctor won't do any good, my friend. This one needs a priest. At this point, a blanket of black crepe came down and covered everything, even the headdress. I've become used to everything, to our white building, the twilight, the ginger cat that comes and scratches at my door, but I can't get used to his visits. The first time it happened, I still lived downstairs in room 63. He appeared out of the wall wearing his red crown. Nothing about him frightened me. He looks just the same in my dreams. But I know perfectly well that if he's wearing the crown, he must be dead. And then he spoke, moving dry lips clotted with blood. He parted his lips, came to attention, raised his hand to his crown and said, Brother, I can't leave the squadron. And every time since that first time, the same thing happens. He arrives in his soldier's blouse with the ammunition belts over his shoulder, with his curving sabre and spurs that never jingle. And he says the same words. First he salutes, and then... Brother, I can't leave the squadron. How he frightened me the first time. He scared the entire clinic. It, it was all over for me then. I figured it out rationally. If he's wearing the crown, he's been killed. And if a dead man comes and speaks to me, I must be mad. Oh, it's twilight. The hour of retribution. But there was one time when I dozed off and dreamed of a parlour with old-fashioned red plush furniture. I saw a cosy armchair with a broken leg. There was a portrait on the wall in a black, dusty frame and flowers in vases. There was an upright piano, with its lid open and the score of Faust set out on it. He was standing in the doorway, and a wild joy blazed up in my heart. He wasn't dressed as a cavalryman. He looked just as he used to before those terrible days. He was wearing a black double-breasted jacket, the elbow smeared with chalk. His eyes were bright with mischievous laughter, and a lock of hair hung over his forehead. He jerked his head. Brother! Come to my room. You'll never believe what I'm going to show you. The light shining from his eyes lit up the whole parlour, and the weight of remorse inside me melted. That ill-omened day when I heard him say go had never happened. No thudding, no clouds of ash. He'd never ridden away from us, never served in the cavalry. He was playing the piano, the ivory keys were tinkling, the golden thatch of his hair was glinting, and his laughing voice was full of life. Then I woke up, and there was nothing. No radiance, no eyes. I've never had another dream like that since. And that very night, to make my hellish torment even worse, the cavalryman came all the same, in battle dress, stepping silently. And he said the words he was destined to say for all eternity. I decided to put a stop to it. I spoke to him firmly. What's this for, my eternal torturer? Why do you come? 
I admit everything. I take the blame on myself because I sent you on that deadly campaign. The weight of that other man, the one they hanged, I also take upon myself. And now I have told you this, forgive me and let me be. General, sir, he said not a word and stayed. Then my suffering made me cruel and I wished with all my heart that he would appear to you just once, raising his hand to his crown in salute. I assure you that that would be the end of you, just as it finished me, in the blink of an eye. However, perhaps you two have a visitor in the dark hours of the night. Who knows, perhaps that grubby man with the such stain comes to you, and the one we hanged from the lamppost in Berdyansk. If that's so, our suffering is justified. I sent Collier to help you with your hanging, your hanged men too. You gave countless orders that were never written down. So then he stayed. I scared him away with a yell. I roused everyone. The medical assistant ran in. They woke up Ivan Vasilievich. I didn't want to see another dawn, but I wasn't allowed to do myself in. They tied me up with a sheet, took the broken glass away and bandaged me up. I've been in room 27 since then. After they dosed me, I started dozing off, and I heard the assistant's voice in the corridor. She said, A hopeless case. It's true. There's no hope for me. Vainly, in the twilight, in my scorching grief, I wait for that dream, the old familiar room and the peaceful light of his shining eyes. None of it exists, and it never will again. The burden is still upon me, and I wait patiently at night for the familiar cavalryman with unseeing eyes to appear and say to me hoarsely, I can't leave the squadron. It's true. I am a hopeless case. He will torture me to death.